So I thought I would begin with three things. I'd like to read you a poem and tell you um, a, a, an image, a, an advertising image that I saw quite a lot uh, while I was traveling uh, three days ago. And uh, um, the third thing is I want to tell you the best book I've read in the last year, and then we'll go from there. But uh, this is a very favorite poem of mine. Often we read poems at the end of a talk, and kind of warm up to the poem. But the poem, in some ways, is a, is a summary of the talk. It's a very good way to begin. This is a poem by uh, Billy Collins, who uh, was Poet Laureate. And it's, the name of the poem is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I see, can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the c conductor, who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> so I love that. I, in a certain way, I think it's a summary of uh, uh, at least one way of how to talk about what we are doing here. There is another way to see a situation. We could see in a new way. The thing about that that poem is, is such a surprise at, by the time you come to the end of it. I've read it, I don't know how many times, and it tickles me so much each time I come to the end of it. The famous endless coda that established Beethoven as an innovative genius. It's a surprise, but it's got the whole message in it that whatever it is, it's not that bad. It's really okay. It's really actually amazing. Whatever is happening, this moment is what it is, but it's in a context of something bigger and something bigger and something bigger. And what can we do to hold the mind in that frame that sees in the biggest possible way, that sees through the light, the, the, the lens of awe and respect rather than the sense of personal conflict and contention? It's very exciting to think about the fact that the mind is not necessarily held hostage by any situation, that nothing needs to change in order for the mind to be free to appreciate. Another way to say that would be nothing needs to change for the heart to be able to love. That's so encouraging. That's the fundamental message of Dharma. That's the fundamental promise of the mind that's not caught in habits. Think of some of the words that we would use for it. We could say, well, the mind that's flexible. There's another way to see this situation. 
One of the words that I like very much is malleable. Always reminds me of clay. Malleable. But really, malleable is a great word. It means it's not stuck in a certain way. Okay, this is how it was, but you know, it could be this way also. Malleable means open to change. Somebody once said it in, a, in, in, in the most ordinary language that uh, the mind that was free was the mind that was able in all circumstances, especially particularly in those circumstances that are distressing, to be able to say and mean it, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, and somehow make the space for that. James talked about that a little bit this morning uh, when he was talking about the, the instructions for practice. And he made the point, I thought so clearly, that um, this is not about being here and having particular mind states arise, <clears throat> particular experiences arise. Experiences arise just because they do, because we're alive. So it doesn't so much make a difference if uh, torpor is present and a lot of sleepiness is there or if agitation is there and, uh, and there's some uh, restlessness about it. No, neither of them is comfortable in and of itself, but it doesn't matter. Torpor is not better than restlessness, nor actually anything else, worse or better than anything else. What the, uh, uh, the gist of practice is, is, be, is being able to say, this is what's happening and I can accommodate it. What we're actually doing here is practicing being enlightened in a certain way. We're practicing being able to say, this is the truth. And the wisest way to meet it is with an accommodating heart. A friend of mine wrote me a letter a few years ago. She's uh, coming on 90 now. And she uh, had, after some years of having given up her original home that she lived in for many decades, actually, and moved to an apartment and then to a smaller apartment and then to a um, cooperative living situation and finally into an assisted living situation. And she wrote me a note. She's an artist, and uh, what I can see now is a really shaky hand. And she said, I wish you'd come and teach meditation here where I now live. She said, because now I've needed to move here to this assisted living. She said, and I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation. And well, part of the story, which maybe I'll tell you another time, is my experience in going and teaching in an assisted living. But I was thinking so much about how that particular phrase, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation, is everybody's phrase, always. You know? <laughs> when, when three-year-olds have to go to preschool and leave their mother for the first time, they have trouble adjusting to their new situation. And my uh, five-year-old grand granddaughter was being very restless, upset recently. My, my daughter told me the story. She'd picked Honor up at preschool, and um, Honor was really unhappy, and uh, it's coming to the end of the preschool when she starts kindergarten in the fall. And so uh, Liz said to her, Honor, is there you know, something about, they'd been talking about the end of school, said, uh, you know, kindergarten's going to start. Are you thinking about it? She said, and Honor presumably said back to her, she said, yes. She said, I'm worried. I won't know where to go, or what to do, or what work I should do. He said, well, when you get there, they'll tell you. He said, but I, I tell you that story because it's so sweet. Nobody thinks about the worry 
of having to go to kindergarten. But if, if you're in preschool and you know where to go and where to sit and what the work is and where you put away your stuff, and you have to go to kindergarten, it's a whole new thing. But I think every, every bit of our life is a whole new thing. You have to all of a sudden have to get used to being pubertal, and then all of a sudden we have to be used to having relationships, and all of a sudden we have to do this, and all of a sudden we have to do that. And we have a whole life of needing to adjust to new situations. And so once you get it together, then you have to start to adjust to being old and having all the things that you were able to do before not available to you anymore. So in some way, Beatrice's I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance is everybody's story in all of their life. It's not a mistake, it's how it is to be in life. In some way, when you come here and uh, we have a new circumstance, everybody has a little bit of trouble adjusting to this new circumstance. You're sleeping away from home, out of your bed, eating different kinds of food, not talking to anybody, sitting still for long periods of time. Everybody has a little trouble adjusting to this new circumstance. I remember one of the really classic lines in my memory from just after I'd begun my own uh, meditation practice, telling a friend of mine afterwards, I was very enthusiastic about it. And I remember meeting a friend, an old school friend I hadn't seen in a long time. And we were talking about our lives and having lunch together. and, and. Partly because I was very enthusiastic about what I was doing, and partly probably because I wanted to impress him a little bit. I was uh, telling him about my meditation retreats that I was doing, mostly emphasizing the rigor of how early I got up in the morning and how late I stayed up and how long I sat still and the, the kind of physical rigor of the situation. I got all finished. And he said, I can't believe you sat alone with your mind for two weeks. Because really, that's the biggest rigor sitting alone with your mind for two weeks or a day or for however long. So we could see in a new way. We could hold things in a new way. We could be in a relationship with our experience in a new way that was wider and more spacious, more able to accommodate the situation, barking dog or assisted living or whatever it is. So that was the first thing, the poem. The second thing I wanted to tell you about was an ad I saw. I, I uh, had a very, several very long plane flights the other day <coughs> and um, I was in um, standing in lines in a lot of airports and there, there was um, uh, a big ad that I kept seeing, uh, kind of one of those billboard ads, as you stood in line with your passport and your ticket waiting. And um, it was an ad for some new telecommunications device. But the ad was uh, a line of uh, mostly men, I think, but business-looking people in suits, kind of, in a line uh, waiting to get on an airplane just as I was waiting to get on an airplane. So it was geared to the people who were standing in lines in airports and uh, was a benign enough looking ad, all these men and some women standing there, attache cases. But it sort of had an arrow, I think, pointing at one man and it said in big letters underneath, this man does not know 
that he has 32 unanswered emails. That's the ad. And then it goes on to tell you that you could have this device, of course, that now that everything is wired with modems, that he could have been answering his emails while he was standing on the line. And I kept thinking, you know, every time I looked at it, I laughed. It sounded like the most dreadful thing in the world. This man <laughs> does not know that he has 32 unanswered emails. It also passed my mind that I had been away uh, and out of the country for three weeks, and I probably had, <laughs> I did have <laughs> a, a huge number of emails, but I hadn't thought about it. Actually, it was a pleasure to be away from the huge number of emails. But the gist of the ad was that somehow, having been on top of the emails, would have been the cause of the end of suffering for him. It was a very big dis- difficulty for him that he didn't know it, and if only he had his 32 emails, everything would be okay. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was, as a, in, in my uh, way in which my mind does, I start to rewrite the ad. I'm going to write it new. This man does not know more portentous, you see, I think what is more important. This man does not know that his view of what is valuable or important in life will exhaust him, will turn out to be a bottomless pit of desire, <laughs> and that his emails will not end his suffering. That's, that's number one rewrite of the ad. Probably will not sell a lot of that communications device, but then I, I continued, I elaborated it. This man does not know that unreckoned with greed, hatred, and desire are con- creating pain all over the world, <laughs> and that people are killing each other and ruining the planet and despoiling the air and the water. This man really does not know what's important. And I put, and it, it's been in my mind for three or four days now, and uh, I've, I've been thinking, sometimes I think about it and I laugh about it, and sometimes I think, it is, uh, it's so sad that we actually don't know what's important. So I wanted, to say, I wanted to say that what I want to talk about is, first of all, we could see in a new way, how could we do it? What would we see if we could see? What's important to see? I think it's important to see that the world could be different and that greed, hatred, and desire reckoned with would make a different world. And then the third thing that I wanted to stay, say, at least to start, is that uh, just in the last uh, month, I read a book which I just uh, amazed me and uh, inspired me tremendously. The book is by Tracy Kidder. It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Have you read it? Has anybody read it? It's the most amazing book. It's a book about um, uh, a man named Paul Farmer a contemporary, a a living man. Paul Farmer is um, perhaps uh, among the ranking um, uh, infectious disease specialists in the world. And um, he's probably in his late 50s now. He spends four months a year in Boston on the teaching faculty of several hospitals in Boston and the other eight months of the year in Haiti, where he has been with that amount of frequency since before he went to medical school. At some point, he, before he went to medical school, he had an opportunity, I forgot exactly how it worked out, to go to Haiti, which is really the poorest part of the Northwestern Hemisphere. 
and uh, see uh, uh, and uh, and was so touched by the the sickness that is not that is treatable that is not treated there, notably tuberculosis. And in it, it's a long story to tell you here, so I, I only want to tell you two vignettes from it that touched me so much. Anyway, before he began medical school, he began to go back and forth and work there and set up medical clinics there and continued to do that and ultimately got funding to build a, a big hospital complex and has made a serious difference um, in, the, in, in many, many hundreds and thousands of people's lives. Also become uh, an expert in um, treating tuberculosis that has become resistant to multiple um, uh, antibiotics and become uh, a world expert on that. So he's always flying all over the world and teaching here and going there and setting up another clinic there. And uh, early on, as I read it and uh, uh, read just his degree of dedication and indefatigability, I thought to myself, I f briefly had a thought, what am I doing you know, compared to him, my life in terms of service? Uh, and then I thought, no, oh, no, that's not a wise way to think about it. Everybody does what they can do. I don't have to be thinking of my life in terms of why am I not like Paul Farmer. To think to myself, human beings have a capacity to be on a on a uh, continuum that's like Paul Farmer. Some people in an extraordinary end of that continuum, and some of us, and I hope all of us, somewhere on that continuum, on the continuum of people who know that it is possible to go outside of one's own self 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 centered needs, really think about other people's needs and recognize that in dedicating one's life to other people's well-being, not only do you make a difference in the world, but you make your own life meaningful. That the loss of, uh, the loss of um, preoccupation with one's separate self is a great blessing. It really frees you from the preoccupation, really the prison of our own small-mindedness. It changes the world, and it makes it, it brings gratification, makes your life worthwhile. That the Bodhisattva image is a viable image. It's not only a mythological image; it's a viable image, and people come very close to living it out. There were two images in the book that stay with me. One is that Tracy Kidder, who's um, a journalist and a fine writer really, uh, over a period of years and years, literally followed Paul Farmer around and watched him work and, and teach and be with him and watched him in all his interactions, and wrote this uh, outstanding book. At one point, uh, he's saying, uh, uh, Tracy Kidder is saying, that he noticed uh, that uh, uh, Farmer slept very little, he said. As a matter of fact, he said sometimes when he looked in his room in the morning, he could, in, the, in this hospital complex in Haiti, he could see that his bed wasn't slept in. And he would say to him, you know, I noticed that your bed wasn't slept in. Where were you? And he said, and he said, well, Farmer would say to him, sometimes it happens to me that I lie down on my bed and I'd like to sleep, but then I think to myself, there might be someone in this hospital who's in pain, who's not being treated at this moment, who I could do something for. And then I have to get up and go find them and do something for them. 
And I am so touched by that, that call to respond. The other one is on some other occasion, near the end of the book, uh, there's, uh, Tracy Kidder has the opportunity to go along with Paul Farmer uh, by foot over a hill and mountain and up and down and all kinds of circumstances, make a five-hour walk to a distant, very remote village to treat someone whom he's heard about who's in a dire circumstance and can't be brought to the hospital. So he goes, Tracy Kidder goes with him. They go all the way there. It's a grueling journey and and walk all the way back. So it's a five-hour walk and a five-hour walk back and treating this person there who turns out to have been now successfully treated. And the question comes up about was that a worthwhile worth of your day? Should you have done that? You have so many patients here in the hospital that was just one person and it took up one day to go and to come. But they have a, a, he responds with a, a really um, wonderful discussion about, we have the concept of triage, you know, you do what you can for the most people, the fastest, and that if you think outside of the concept of the most people, you respond to one person at a time. There's a person that you could save. You go and you do it. And then you do the next person that you can save and the next person. And you don't strategize about it so much. I was tremendously touched by that. So I had three things that I wanted to say. How else could we know? That was the first one. How could we see in a new way? What would we see if we could see in a new way? And how does that inspire us? That inspires me. I think that we could, I could, I think that human beings could be free from self-preoccupation if they recognized the great freedom that's part of that. So today is a very auspicious day in the Buddhist calendar. It's uh, uh, the full moon in the month of May, which uh, in in mythology or in fact or is anyway recognized as the enlightenment day of the Buddha. So even though it's a whole day long, I thought I would tell you that the full moon is exactly at 8.14 tonight. So I'm having my eye on the clock, and I think at 8.14 we'll have a moment of silence, during which time we will all try to approximate the absolute spacious, peaceful mind of a completely freed... Why not? I actually think we tell these stories in order to rouse a certain amount of enthusiasm and zeal that it's a it's a possible human thing i think about it for myself not in terms i don't think so much in terms of becoming completely free forever and ever i'd love that but moment to moment free moments this moment free this next moment free free of struggle with this moment not necessarily free of pain or free of any particular kind of emotional state that might or might not be there, but free of struggle with what's there. Really, that's what the Buddha taught, the possibility to not struggle out of wisdom, that to struggle is to suffer, 
and to be able to accommodate this moment with a loving and receptive and really compassionate heart is really the, the potential of freedom that we have available to us. So really, it's a good thing, I, I think, on the first day of a retreat, which we usually spend giving a lot of instructions since last night, to uh, really go back and talk again about uh, what are these instructions for past becoming a good meditator. I actually think sometimes um, it's, it's, um, it sidetracks the mind to try very hard to be a good meditator. I don't think it's about being a good meditator. I think it's about becoming wise. And that meditation practice is one way that people become wise. And how is this meditation practice, this particular one that we're doing, conducive to wisdom? Sometimes I think, um, um, I think so much about how coming here is immediately, uh, just by the kind of place it is, um, a soothing to the heart, kind of a balm to the heart. I feel, I feel a little bit myself when that, that uh, it's like coming to a hospital for my soul or something that has a chance to recuperate. Don't you feel that way a little bit? It's so quiet. We try so hard uh, to maintain the kind of ambiance here that is soothing to people. That Everybody normally notices that after some hours or days, they relax a little bit, that when someone you can, you can do like a relaxation test when someone drops a fork in the dining room. You find that you don't startle so much, or if the door slams, you don't jump so much. You discover that the mind settles down a little bit. There's the sense of not pressuredness. There's no um, uh, pressure to do anything. We're never in a hurry. There's no place to go. There's nothing next that has to happen soon. The, the lack of imperative um, seems to me so um, uh, not only relieving in the sense that in our lives we have such big long to-do lists, but the lack of an imperative is directly related, in, at least in my own experience, to uh, the lessening of the sense of a separate self. If I have a to-do list, it, every, th- every bit of that to-do list is creating someone who has to do those things. When there's no an imperative, I... Uh, that, that sense of an important separate self with tasks to do begins to really um, dissipate a little bit in me. That the lack of imperative by itself is a um, clarifying factor. So it's a hospital for the heart. There's not much to do. And actually many of us, I, I, I've been reading the um, um, registration papers that you've all filled out. People have come from difficult situations. and Most people where it says, why did you choose to come on a retreat now, have some compelling reason. And I really needed this or that or the other thing has been happening in my life. I really need a little time to settle down. So I am very glad for this being this for so many people. And in addition to that, but not apart from that, I I, I really want to emphasize that the, the, the fact that the mind settles down and the body and the whole nervous system recuperate a little bit is the, a starting place for the possibility 
of really uh, discovering new ways to see, discovering the potential of uh, a new view, of really understanding the habits of the mind that create suffering. Apart from the habits of life that create stress and, and a lot of pain, the habits of mind that create suffering and the possibility of seeing them, the stories that we tell ourselves, the ways that we respond to what happens, to begin to be able to see them and to decondition those habits so that we don't just rest here and then go out and meet the fray of the world in the same old way, but rest here and then go out with more vision and more wisdom and meet the world in a new way. It's really the possibility of liberating the mind and heart from the habits that continually re-fatigue it. So on the full moon in May, some 2,500 years ago, the Buddha is said to have, after many years of preparation practice, training his mind and his body to be still in all circumstances, to, be, to have been able to see clearly through and understand clearly the nature of the arising of suffering and the ending of suffering. See specifically that which was his intention in his practice. And then spent the rest of his life teaching it to people. The specific habit is the habit of the mind to have things, to need to have things be other than what they are. Not a passive response to life. It's a response, in fact, of full compassion. It's an engaged and and compassionate response to the suffering of the world, having seen it and acknowledged it. But it's it's a response that takes in that understands that what is happening is happening lawfully as a result of everything that's gone before and that what will change the world and heal the world and heal hearts is a compassionate non-contentious response it's fundamentally that wisdom that changes liberates the heart from and mind from re-fatiguing itself with the habits of needing to have it otherwise Think about all the worlds, needing to have it words, needing to have it otherwise, being in contention with how things are, resenting how things are. I can not be happy with how things are in the world. There are a lot of things in the world that I'm not happy with, that I wish were otherwise, that I try in whatever way I can, as I'm sure you do, to have be otherwise. To be able to do it without adding contention to a contentious world, that that really, I think, is what we are meant to do. To be able, out of kindness, to respond to the world. So, one way of thinking of what we're doing here, just by the nature of our practice, every bit of this practice, is we are training the mind to a non-contentious, kind response. And we're training it in at least three ways. 
We're training it uh, through habit, just by practicing. We're, tra- we're, we're training it through the renewed um, commitment to sila practice, to uh, um, uh, virtue practice that we all took on last night, which we all have in our lives, I'm sure, but which we all recommitted ourselves to last night when we said, I undertake the training precept to abstain from harming. And we train it as well through uh, the insights that arise in the course of being in this kind of container, in the course of looking for insights. We train it through wisdom. So moment to moment, through habit, through uh, virtue, and uh, we hope through the arising of wisdom. So I'll talk a little bit about each of those three things. The habit of non-contention. Mindfulness is a non-coercive response of the mind. Doesn't make anything any different from what it is. Says, oh, this is what's happening. Ah, this is what's happening. It includes this is what's happening and it's pleasant. This is what's happening and it's unpleasant. This is what's happening and it's pleasant. I hope it stays. That's a reasonable, that's a normal response of the mind. I hope it stays is different from I need it to stay. I can't relax unless it stays. We are, uh, we don't stop having neurological systems just if we pay attention. That if things are pleasant, we do hope they stay. Aha, this is happening. Whatever it is, my back hurts or my neck hurts or I'm restless or I'm hot or I'm falling asleep a lot or whatever it is. This is happening. It's not so pleasant. I wish it wasn't here, but it is. Okay, it's here. We are training ourselves just by moment to moment, acknowledging and opening to the moment, not fighting with it, not requiring that it be otherwise. We are not complicating it not making the tension more. You might really think about uh, the, the, the uh, difference, the uh, extraordinary difference between pain and suffering that the Buddha taught. We, I don't know those words. I, I don't know the word for pain in Pali, but the word dukkha really means, at least the, 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 the way in which I am thinking about it most, is the extra tension created in the mind by the habits of the mind in the way that it relates to whatever the experience of the moment is. It's the extra tension. Things are just what they are. Some things are painful, some things are pleasant. They can be painful, they can be pleasant without the tension in the mind to need to have them otherwise. So sincerely, that, that, that meaning of suffering the extra tension in the mind from not being able to allow things to be just what they are. And so actually in the moment of being able to acknowledge a moment, that's really a moment of freedom, of suffering. Could, it's a moment of whatever it is. It doesn't necessarily have to be a moment of delightful feeling, but it's a moment of freedom from suffering. And that's a delightful feeling. Say, okay, I can be with this. I can be with this. This is not so pleasant, this restlessness or this sore back, but I can be with it. I can do this. 
actually it's tremendously um, courage-making to be able to know I can be with that. Um, I think uh, for myself, my own experience has always been that uh, I'm inspired to think when I'm realizing that I can be with something that isn't so pleasant, that I, I, when something will be really unpleasant in my life, maybe I'll be able to be with that as well, and that I'm training myself for that as well. Every moment of being able, in, uh, every moment of being here and sitting on the zafu, every moment of walking, um, uh, somebody in giving the instructions, maybe Sally in giving the instructions this morning, saying all of a sudden, as you're walking, there's this uh, seductive allure coming out of the dining room, like a great magnetic pull that says, lots of boxes of tea down here. You could just come down and have some tea. And the pull in the mind to go to have some tea because the walking at that point is not so comfortable. And the movement of the mind and heart that says, okay, I feel like having tea, but now is not tea time. Now is walking time. Okay, now I accommodate and I walk. And not I grit my teeth and I walk and I check my watch every two minutes, but I walk and I put my whole attention in the walking. And I really feel this footfall and that footfall and this footfall and that footfall. Because when I do, the, the pull of desire to go and have the tea disappears. It doesn't have any room, actually. It only stays there as long as there's someone who wants the tea. When the, the tea wanting stops, then the whole attention is here and the foot f touches the ground and you feel it. And it's tremendously exciting to touch the ground with your foot and know it. I, I actually, uh, I'm having such a good time telling you just that right now, because I'm remembering thinking the very first time that I put my foot down on the ground with, uh, with particular awareness and actually was completely there. I felt so thrilled in my body. I thought, this is the weirdest thing in the world. I am thrilled about putting my foot down. That's not normally a thrilling experience. I would normally think of other kinds of thrilling experiences. But mindfulness is thrilling. To have the mind totally focused and totally here. So throughout the day, sitting and walking and eating and going about your work uh, meditation, whatever it is, if to in any moment in which the attention stays with the present experience and doesn't get pulled this way or that way, or does not succumb to the pull to be this way or that way, and stays here, in that moment we are practicing being free. That is a moment of freedom moment of complete presence is a moment of freedom. And in those moments, the stories stop. All of the stories, I'm doing this right, I'm doing it wrong, I'll never get it. When is this hour going to be over? I shouldn't have come on this retreat. This is ridiculous. should have gone to Hawaii. I wonder if that airplane's going to Hawaii. It's probably <laughs> full of people who are having a good time. You know, I should have called my brother-in-law. We could have gone fishing. Whatever it is that the mind is thinking about or making up stories, the stories fall away and the moment becomes precious. You know, sometimes when I tell people there are different ways to tell the instructions, I say, I'd like to tell the instructions instead of saying walk in this way or bring the attention to the breath in that way. I'd like to tell the instructions, stop telling yourself stories. We just are perpetual story machines. We just 
are continually making up stories of how it is now and whether we're liking it or not liking it and how it's going to be soon or how it was or if it'll be like that again. And uh, when the stories stop, there's nothing but now, which is always interesting and really enlivening. But it's hard to stop the stories. That instruction, just stop the stories, is, is, you know, it's facile to say and it's hard to do. So instead, we have all these other instructions that your attention rests with the breath, that your intention rests with your feet, with the chewing, with the lifting, with the moving, with the placing. But in fact, it's the same as saying, stop the stories. Sometimes when I find uh, there are compelling stories, you've probably noticed, we have two minutes to 8.14, I'm watching. You've probably, the, the, there are stories that are compelling and you've pro- there are probably a number of stories that you've told yourself so many times already in this one day. Run through the story. I said, she said, I said, she said, I said, she said, I said, she said. When I see her again, I'll say, she'll say, I'll say, she'll say, I'll say, she'll say. <laughs> It'll get, and the story goes around again. And it, it, after a while, it becomes so ridiculous. You know, we don't play. We don't, if we put a video in the DVD in, the, in, in and turn on, oh, I saw this already. We pop it out. We don't do it again. <laughs> But we walk around with ourselves and we see the same perpetual DVD going on all the time. So I heard this already, I did this already, now I'm here. Every moment of practice and every moment of presence is a moment of freedom. It's 8.13 and I, I, you know, 8.14, okay. And I am much too much of a devotee of mystery and magic to let the moment pass. Uh, let's take two minutes of, um, try to smile, it'll probably make it easier, and uh, see how it feels to be free. Let your mind really rest.
I felt enormously happy that there was a frog outside. <laughs> I'm hopeful that in some way that that opportunity to just sit and just be um, was inspiring to you. What I had in mind that I talk about, but really with the, at the end of our time, and um, I just as well say this in a brief way and let it be for another talk, is that there's a way to think about this practice uh, as not going anywhere, but being there already. That uh, I think it's both and. I don't, th- I don't so much think of it as um, um, something that I'll arrive at as, <clears throat> as a steady state after some long period of time. Although I think it's a lifelong practice. And I think it's immediately available. Peace of mind, the mind that puts stuff down. Says, okay, just what it is. Is available right now. I think for myself the connection between being able to put stuff down and say just what it is, okay, is connected to the lifelong um, cumulative practice of seeing really that things are just what they are because they couldn't be anything else. Of really understanding that things are the lawful uh, consequence of everything else that's ever happened. That everything matters, that everything has a cause and causes something. That everything that any of us do is part of the future that we all create together. I think that to the degree that I see that lawful interrelationship of things, I fight less with my experience. To the degree that I understand more deeply that to struggle is to increase my suffering, I struggle less. I think that as I really uh, experience more and more over time the ephemeral nature of experience, how things change and pass, that I struggle less. So I think that there's a that there is a over time path. But I think there's a in the present always understanding as well. I think that. Uh, the, the two instructions I've had for myself for the most in the last year, recognizing the way in which my mind is uh, seduced into wanting something or being annoyed with something or wishing that something would go away or wishing I'd get something or wishing I'd be over with this, the way that my mind is seduced into an anguish or a turmoil by some passing thing. <clears throat> I've had for myself the instruction over the last year particularly when I see something coming along to seduce my mind into struggle 
I say to myself, don't pick it up. Actually, uh, um, <coughs> part of traditional Sabbath practice in the tradition in which I am raised is not to carry heavy things around. So I think to myself, this is a, I am cultivating an ongoing Sabbath of the mind. Something's coming by and it's a heavy thing, so don't pick it up. And then if I accidentally pick it up, which I often do, you say, oh, I pick this up, put it down. So those have been my two instructions for this last year. Don't pick it up, and if I do, put it down. And I am more or less successful with those instructions, but they, they're really simple instructions. So I give them to you as well. Don't pick it up, because in this moment, instead of picking it up, you could listen to the frogs or just sit. So in this next period of time, uh, when you go outside for this little walking period, there is that full moon, and uh, you could look at it, and uh, may we all continue to inspire each other not to pick it up, to put it down, to remember that peace is possible, the kind of peace that manifests itself in the kind of heart that takes care of other people and looks out for everyone, including oneself, takes care of oneself and all other people happily. So we just sit for one more minute. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on May 23, 2005. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.